1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it.
2: So my guest today is Virginia Eubanks. Virginia is an associate professor of political science at the University of Albany at the State University of New York. She is the author of several books, including Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor, and Digital Dead End, Fighting for Social Justice in the Information Age. Her writing about technology and social justice has appeared in The American Prospect, The Nation, Harper's, and Wired. She has worked for two decades in community technology and economic justice movements. She was a co-founder of the Our Data Bodies Project, and she lives in Troy, New York. Uh, Welcome to the show, Virginia.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So, Virginia, I invited you on the show today to talk about your book, Automating Inequality, which is a really interesting look at the nature and consequences of what I call algocracy or Algorithmic governance in the delivery of public services. So, the book is constructed around a series of case studies, and you use these to argue that the automation of public services is creating a digital poorhouse, one, is that it, one that is both analogous to the physical poorhouses of history, and yet also subtly different and possibly more insidious. So, you describe some of the mechanisms through which this digital poorhouse is created, and then argue that it undermines important social values, including freedom, equality, and social inclusion. Now, as is always the case when we're discussing a book, we're not going to be able to cover everything that the book uh, covers, but hopefully we can touch upon some of the main issues and ideas and arguments.
0: No, I insist that we talk about every single thing that's in
2: the book. Well, people have to have some reason to buy the book as well. So. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to start with maybe some general kind of background questions concerning the motivation of the book and its methodology, and maybe its, it's a central thesis as well. There's a famous quote, I think, from... William Gibson, uh, and I may have taken this from you as well as an illustration of the thesis of the book, which states something like, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And that quote is usually taken to be a comment on the wealthy having access to technology that other people don't have, so that they have access to the future already. But I guess the motivation behind your book or the idea behind your book is that the reverse is actually true. Could you maybe comment on that idea? Yeah,
0: so I love that quote. Um, I use it all the time, but I do tend to tell people that I mean it the opposite way of what I think William Gibson meant it, uh, how William Gibson meant it. So one of the sort of origin stories for this book is uh, for many years, I worked in the community technology center movement, which meant that I was in communities, um, co-designing technology access spaces with people who lived in those communities. So I did that in in public housing and I um, did it in poor working class communities in California and in upstate New York. Um, And one of the places that I did that work was a a residential YWCA um, here in my hometown of Troy, New York, where 90 poor working class women lived, some of which um, with their their kids in what was more or less um, sort of like a single room occupancy hotel. And we built this really beautiful technology lab. At in that space, and um, one of the folks that I worked really closely with um, who goes by a pseudonym in my work now, uh, goes by the pseudonym Dorothy Allen. Dorothy and I were sitting in the computer lab one day and just sort of shooting the breeze about technology, and I, um, she's a young mom who was on public assistance, and I asked her about her electronic benefits transfer card, her EBT card, which is the like ATM-like card that you get public benefits on starting in about 2000. And I um, EBT cards were new when we were talking and I said, oh, you know, a lot of people have said that they really like these things that makes they're like less stigma in the grocery store, like instead of pulling out paper food stamps, that it's more convenient. And she kind of nodded and she was like, yeah, that's true. She's like, But at the same time my caseworker uses the digital records that are created by this card as a way to track all of my purchases and all of my movements. And I must have had this like really shocked look, naively shocked look on my face because she kind of laughed at me for a while. And then she got more quiet and she was like, oh, Virginia, you know, you all, meaning professional middle class people, you all should pay attention to what's happening to us because you're next. And so I And that, by the way, that conversation happened in 2000. So that was 18 years ago. And the reason that that is an origin... A moment for so much of my work is that Dorothy's voice is now always in my head um, for two reasons. One, because I think that was like an incredibly generous thing to, to be concerned about people beside herself when she was already struggling with this um, very deeply surveillance social control-y relationship with the state that she was trying to navigate. I thought it was really generous of her to care about what happened to other people. And two, Dorothy reminded me that whenever you want to look at the most, I think, compelling and the most intense impacts of any new technology, right, look where where people are facing the most direct effects of that technology. And so for her and for me, I think that's in um, one of the places we're seeing some of the most intense impacts from automated decision making is in public services. So the, the, the real intention of the book was to do exactly um, what you're suggesting, was to flip that idea that the future has already arrived from looking at the way that professional middle class and wealthy people interact with tools, these sort of digital tools as consumers with the way that poor and working families interact with these new tools as folks who really um, can't be thought of as straightforward consumers in any easy way, right? In many cases, they don't necessarily have much of a choice about whether or not they want to interact with these systems if they want to access support for their basic human needs.
2: Yeah, and I think it's a really important observation and point that, you know, sometimes we think of the future as something that's accessible to these wealthy elites living in Silicon Valley, and yet the irony actually is that they're often the ones that try to reject or escape the very tools that they have become rich on the back of. So, you know, people have been sharing lots of these stories recently. They've been known for a number of years about how the children of wealthy tech billionaires don't ha- use the devices that they themselves market. Right? Create. They
0: they all go to Montessori schools and like play with yarn and wood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah uh, that's a really good point. Um so as you say this conversation happened back in the year 2000 but then the, you encountered this future yourself, a story that you start the book with uh, for your partner, Jason. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that story and how this became kind of real in your own life.
0: Yeah, so I had already started writing the book, writing the draft of the book, um, when uh, about three years ago, uh, in October of 2015, my much beloved um, partner, Jason, um, was walking home from the corner store to our house one day, about a block and a half away from our house, and um, was attacked and beaten really very, very badly, Um, badly enough to require some very intensive um, reconstructive surgery in his face. And uh, this, as you would imagine, this entire Uh, experience was incredibly difficult for both of us. Um, But one of the things that was most challenging for me was shortly, just within days of him having the reconstructive surgery on his face, um, I went to the drugstore to pick up his pain medication. And when I got to the pharmacy counter, they told me they had canceled the the prescription. They hadn't filled the prescription because we didn't have health insurance. And this was news to me because the day before we had had health insurance. In fact, my health insurance had paid out on um, the emergency room visit and uh, a lot of the things that had happened um, just at the very beginning of this experience. But for some reason, it had suddenly stopped working um, once the bills from the surgery showed up. And so in a panic, I called um, our health insurance provider and they said, oh, you know, this just must be a mistake somewhere. There's a couple of sort of missing digits in um, in the database. Uh, We don't have a start date for you. So we don't have a date on which your coverage started. It was new coverage and it just um, started about a month before the attack. They said, you know, we're not really sure what's happening. And I asked, you know, there's there's a lot of um, claims that are going to be coming through. Are, are those claims going to clear? And they said, well, if you don't have a start date, then you don't have insurance. If you don't have insurance, then we're not going to cover those claims. And we are talking about uh, about sixty thousand dollars worth of bills. So as you would imagine, I was in a huge, huge panic. But as I stepped back from it and thought a little bit about the uh, the, the situation we found ourselves in, I realized that. My family was showing a lot of the uh, the common characteristics of insurance fraud. so uh, the accident happened at night or that the accident, the attack happened at night. Um, so Jason received most of his services at night, including painkillers, including oxycodone um, to help him manage his pain. Uh, it was a brand new policy. And within a couple of weeks, um, you know, we had submitted tens of thousands of dollars of claims and we aren't married. Um, so he's insured as my domestic partner. Um, all of these things, doing a little bit of research, I found out are red flags for insurance fraud. So those. So the insurance company kept telling me, oh, this just is just a technical error, it's just a a technical problem. What I slowly started to realize or believe very strongly was that we were undergoing an insurance fraud investigation and they had paused our insurance while they did the investigation. Um, They never would admit that to me. They continued to say, no, no, it's just like somehow it's just you never got a start date. That doesn't make sense to me because if they paid out claims before (laughs) the attack, then we are we obviously had a start date at that point. It's possible that someone in the call center accidentally erased our, our start date, but I find it more convincing that, um, you know, like if there's a strange charge on your credit card at this point, they just stop your credit card until they can do the investigation. It felt very much like that. What was, that's what was happening to us. And the thing that was, you know, this is not something I felt like I needed a personal experience of to understand. Like this is work I have been doing for a really long time. But I think one of the things that was really brought home to me through that experience was that it felt so much like we were being kicked while we were down. This was a, a moment at which we were the most vulnerable that maybe we ever have been as a couple in, in the last 15 years. Um, Jason was in an extraordinary pain. We weren't sure um, how he was going to come through this, if he was going to come through this. I was caring for him and trying to manage all the other parts of our life, including the incredible support we got from our community and uh, having our insurance it paused while this was happening really felt like having um, the scaffolding of our life pulled out from under us. And so it really did give me this sort of personal, um, I think, understanding of what it might feel like to have this happen to you all the time right? To have this, the, the thing that made a difference for us, in the end, we did get our insurance back. And one of the major things that made a difference for, for us is this was like an aberration in my life. This is not something that happens to me a lot. Would have been a very different situation if I was relying on Medicaid and um, home heating assistance and um, homeless services and child protective services and um, supplemental nutrition assistance, right? If I was involved in all of these programs, then this kind of thing would be happening all the time and i'm not sure we would have had the energy to fight back had this been happening on more than one front at once
2: yeah i mean you, you kind of detail this in the introductory chapter that it was an exhausting process of trying to rectify the situation and I, I i could imagine that people develop this kind of learned helplessness if they're subject to these systems all the time that they just effectively give up or drop out and don't access their their benefits or their entitlements or whatever
0: yeah, I'd, I'd prefer to shift the uh, the uh, intention there, right? Like, So I don't think it's so much that people learn helplessness as that um, organizations and institutions know that if you grind people down hard enough, they'll eventually give up from exhaustion or fury or whatever. So uh, I, I, I know what you're saying, but I'd like to put the onus back on the institutions that do this to us and not on us who get tired, <laughs> right? Like it's a yeah, perfectly – reasonable rational response to 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 get tired when there is an institution that's trying to to grind you that seems like it's trying to grind you down and that is stands between you and your basic human needs like food or housing or medical care
2: yeah no I, like i didn't mean it in the sense that it's a kind of a personal responsibility or personal failing it's just more the sense that it's uh, you you don't know what to do and you just give up the fight so to speak or you um, you don't know. Um, what the appropriate response or reaction is, because there's there's too too much to do at any one time, and you're facing too much deprivation or other problems in your life as well. But
0: yeah, that certainly seems to be what people felt like happened in Indiana. If you want to talk about, if you want to use that as a segue to talk about that case,
2: I do want to talk about that case, but I actually I just I want to set up a little bit of the kind of theoretical background to your book, so okay, uh, which I think is important. And so I'm kind of inverting to some extent the structure of your book, so. Just for people who are listening, the real strength I think of the book is that it has these detailed case studies in it about experiences of people under these automated systems, and then you wrap this up towards the end with the theoretical reflections. Uh, I don't know if this will work perfectly, but I kind of want to foreground some of those theoretical reflections to provide a framework for the for the conversation about the the case studies. And you know, one of the things that comes out very clearly, I think, in the, the penultimate chapter, and also in the chapter on the history as well is that we have a certain approach to poverty in society. And your book is written from the US perspective, but I think it, you know, it's broadly similar in other countries, at least places that I've lived, like in Ireland and, and the UK more briefly. And there's probably two things that come across to me anyway. One is that there's a significant discomfort with poverty and the, a denial of poverty and a desire to kind of hide it from the rest of society. But there's also then an assumption about what poverty is that is problematic, um, that poverty is some kind of state that people are in over a, an extended period of time, that it's maybe a character, flaw, or disposition. We tend to moralize people who are poor. And you talk about this quite a bit, like the, the deserving poor versus the undeserving poor. Um, maybe you could talk about how those ideological assumption, assumptions about poverty and how they feed into the technology that we create to manage poverty.
0: Sure. So I use this metaphor in the book of the digital poorhouse. And um, I chose that very explicitly or very intentionally um, because I wanted us to think about these new technologies more as evolution of poverty policy rather than revolution in poverty policy. Um, and in order to do that, you have to sort of understand the history of like um, what I think of as the deep social programming of these tools that often goes unstated but gets um Pulled into the design of the tools that end and in ways that that ends up being really really consequential in terms of people's um, survival, health, and safety. So I use the metaphor of the digital poorhouse to. Build this analogy with the actual physical brick and mortar county poorhouse in the United States. So, this was in the early 1800s, right after a major economic depression. There was this movement that uh, of economic elites um, who were concerned about the growth of poverty, but the way they framed it was that they were concerned about the growth of what they called pauperism, which was dependence on public benefits rather than the actual growth of poverty, which is. a lack of resources or a structural relationship of exploitation, like however you define poverty, they were concerned with dependence on public benefits. And the tool, the the new innovation that they created in order to fix this problem of people depending on public benefits was the actual brick and mortar poorhouse. So these were institutions. There was supposed to be one in every county in the United States. We didn't quite get that far, but there were at least a thousand of them in the U.S., where we incarcerated the poor. So you could um, enter the poorhouse voluntarily, though it was a bit like saying um, entering a, a homeless shelter is voluntary. I mean, it's hard to say that's strictly voluntary if you don't have other options. Um, but you could also be sentenced to the poorhouse in the United States. So in other places, there was a separation between the workhouse, which was sort of like more like prison, and, and the poorhouse or the almshouse. In the United States, we just combined those. So um, you could be arrested for vagrancy, which is homelessness, or you could be arrested for what was at the time called prostitution, which for women just meant having sex outside of marriage. Your parents could send you to the poorhouse. Your, um, you know, your community could send you to the poorhouse, and this was no small decision, no small um, event, because when you entered the poorhouse. If you had a certain number of rights, I mean, we're talking about the 1820s, so not everybody shared the same rights. But if you had the right to vote or to hold office, you had to give it up in order to enter the poorhouse. You had to sign a pauper's oath that that said you would not vote um, or run for office. Um, you couldn't marry. Um, and often you couldn't keep your children. If you had children with you, they'd be separated from you. And uh, as, as, you know, quote, orphans, um, they weren't actually orphans, but they were considered orphans. Um, and then given to wealthier families, uh, generally as laborers, um, either um, agricultural laborers or, or domestic laborers. And some of these institutions, there were death rates as high as 30% annually, which means like a third of people who entered poor houses every year died. There's a famous poorhouse. house um, Near, uh, near me in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, that took in foundlings, uh, orphans, and every foundling they took in for 30 years died. So these were pretty horrifying institutions. And the reason I chose this as a place to start the story is this is this really important moment in American history where we decided that the goal of public service programs is to make asking for help so horrifying that no one but the absolutely most desperate people would ever ask for help. Um, So this is the moment where we decided that social services should act more like a moral thermometer, deciding whether you were deserving or undeserving, deciding whether or not your poverty was your own fault, rather than building universal floors. So that's a very um, specific model. It's not um, unusual in the whole world, but we are an outlier as the United States in that we don't have a social service system that's based on basic human rights, the idea that everyone has a right to certain basic things like food, shelter, and healthcare, um, and that we have a system in which you have to prove that you're entitled to those things before they'll be be given
2: to you. So can I just... To interject yeah. just briefly, this is more for people listening, which is that I, I agree that the U.S. is probably an outlier in that respect, but I definitely see manifestations of the same kind of ideology in in Ireland, in particular. And there's whole scandals recently about the way in which the Catholic Church institutionalized people, I think, for basically similar gra- on similar grounds and similar reasons to the ones that you were stating there, that people were institutionalized in the in the poorhouse. So I just wanted to throw that comment in.
0: Yeah, and if you look at Australia and New Zealand, right, there are some very similar processes at work there. In fact, I'd love to talk about the robo debt scandal in in Australia right now, uh, which sort of pushes this stuff to uh, its sort of logical and horrifying conclusion, but we can leave that for later. But what I think is important is at the moment that we decided to build poor houses, is after that depression, that was a global depression, at the same time, most of the rest of Europe decided to build welfare states. But the reason that I use that metaphor is to point out that this is the kind of deep social programming that we don't necessarily ever question because it's kind of the water that we swim in as fish, uh, as American fish, right, is this idea that you have to prove that you're eligible for things like healthcare. And one of the things that's been really interesting about doing interviews around the book, particularly interviews with foreign press, has been that often, like, they don't even really understand what that means, right? So it takes all this time to explain, like, when I say something like, you have to prove you're eligible for healthcare, people be like, what? Like, why would you I don't even get that. And I'll be like, oh, right, that's us. That's a thing we do. So this is the moment that we decided that our social services should have all of these moral um, diagnostic systems attached to them. And it's actually where much of our many of our resources and much of our effort go in social services is not in providing basic resources to people, but is in deciding whether or not they deserve those basic resources. And that turns out to be really expensive and really time-consuming and really bad for people's basic health and safety.
2: yeah so I mean, I think that's critical as well, then, because uh, I don't know what the phrase you use in the book is, but basically the argument you make is that these technologies are manifesting this deeper ideology, that they're as you say, they're not like disruptive, they're not something new or different. They are a continuation of a pre-existing set of uh, assumptions about how we should manage uh, poverty or provide public services.
0: Yeah, I feel like they're amplifiers or intensifiers, um, less than disruptors. And that may be most true in places where we have the most unexamined assumptions about the way the world works um, in places like poverty policy. I think that's why it's so interesting to look at how these tools work in um, public services is because that's a place where we're often not being honest with ourselves as a political culture of, uh, you know, about what we actually want the goals of these systems to be. Like, do we want public services to punish people for being poor? Do we want public services to sift, morally sift through the hundreds of thousands of poor and working class people in this country and decide who's most deserving of help? Or do we want these systems to most efficiently uh, distribute the available resources without moralizing? Like, I think that's a choice that we're building into these systems that we're often not willing to articulate as a political choice.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree with that. So, and just just one other thing before we talk about Indiana, um, you kind of you mentioned this towards the end, but the, the, these are kinds of myths that we have about poverty being something that is uh necessarily a long term state that only happens to other people and that um is it somehow reflective of an internal character flaw. I mean, I, I think that ideal would probably be familiar to a lot of people listening to this, but uh, you know, could you comment on that that myth, those myths associated with poverty that the the the, the counter or countervailing evidence and data about how often people experience quote-unquote poverty?
0: Sure, sure. So the story we tend to tell ourselves in the United States, and certainly elsewhere, um, is that poverty is an aberration. It's something that happens to sort of a small and probably pathological minority of people that is reproduced through sort of bad choices, bad character or bad culture. The reality is, um, and this is based on Mark Rank's really incredible life cycle research on poverty, because we tend to only look at poverty in one moment of time. So like the number of people who are currently falling under the federal poverty line at one moment, like when the census is taken. Um, And what Rank's work does is look instead at the likelihood that we will end up under the poverty line at some point in our lives as um, people in the United States. So over the course of our lives, 51% of us will be below the poverty line at some point between the ages of 20 and 64, so in our adult working lives. And a full two-thirds of us will receive Um, means-tested public assistance. So that's straight welfare. That's not, um, you know, reduced-price school lunches. That's not Social Security. That's like cash assistance, food assistance, home heating assistance, housing assistance. So a full two-thirds of us will basically receive welfare in our adult working lives. So this data is so mind-blowing, I think, because it completely inverts the way we talk about poverty in the United States. It is not a minority pathological long-term issue. It is something that um, happens to the The majority of us, it is a majority issue. That doesn't mean we all experience it in the same way, because I don't think you can understand class in the United States and poverty in the United States without understanding race. Um, And things like race, your physical ability, uh, if you have mental health issues, if you were born poor, these all affect the likelihood that you will end up below the poverty line and will make it uh, harder or easier to escape once you go under that line. But the reality is that the majority of us will be poor at some point in our adult lives. And if this is a majority issue, then um, those moral thermometers don't really make much sense at all. So this idea of we have to figure out whether or not your poverty is your own fault. Doesn't really work when we're talking about two thirds of the country. It's like treating pregnancy as an illness, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not an illness. It's a condition that like the majority, uh, close to a majority of people experience at some point in their life. Um, so, yeah, that's the I think the 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 major. Um, one of the major sources of the kinds of assumptions and misunderstandings that we have built into these systems it comes from this idea that we have about poverty that is really just doesn't match the the reality or the
2: data. You know, one of my other interests is in the impacts of automation on employment and the debates around technological unemployment and all that. And I, I can only imagine that some of this is going to get worse, and it's already evidence to suggest this in relation to. The rise of you know precarious forms of employment and, and the withdrawal of work-related benefits. Uh, so the experiences of poverty, I think, possibly will be more widely distributed, even though they probably are experienced differently by different uh, cohorts or populations. But let's move on to discuss what happened in Indiana. So you know, as you say, the main argument here is that we're constructing a digital poorhouse through these automated services. And the first example you use in the book is of what happened in Indiana. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
0: Sure. So Indiana um, started when in 2006, then Governor Mitch Daniels signed what was eventually a $1.34 billion with a B billion dollar contract with this consortium of high tech companies that included IBM and ACS to automate all of the eligibility processes um, for uh, their welfare programs for cash assistance, food assistance, and medical assistance in the state of Indiana. And what that system looked like Was moving 1,500 public employees uh, who used to be local caseworkers who worked in county offices that lived in the same places that the the folks they served lived, moving them from those positions into private private um, jobs with a private contractor. In regionalized call centers. Um, So rather than, and then encouraging folks who are applying for public assistance to apply uh, through an online application rather than to go to their county office. Um, From the point of view of uh, applicants, what that meant well, one is this is 2006, and so less than half of poor and working. Um, families in the United States had access to the internet at that point, so that created quite a barrier to people getting to these online applications. But if they did manage to get an online application in, these are really complex. Uh, this is a really complex process. It's much more complex, I think, than people understand who haven't ever applied for public assistance, right? So these these um, applications can run to 35 or 50 pages long, can require dozens and dozens of documents to support the application, uh, and so. Things happen, right? It's it's complicated. It's it's hard. Um, mistakes get made. Um, and from the point of view of applicants, every time they called the call center, um, they had to talk to a new person. There was nobody who knew their case from beginning to end, knew their specific situation. There was no accountability when mistakes got made because you talked to a new person each time. And from the caseworker's point of view, rather than being responsible for a docket of families, a group of cases, a group of, of families that they developed with. Relationships with over time, they were now just responding to a list of tasks that dropped into this queue in their workflow management system. So they felt like they didn't have context on people. They didn't know how things worked out for them. They weren't. They were no longer in the local area, so they couldn't um, suggest other resources. Like you know, you're you're maybe not eligible for food stamps, but I know that there's a, fo- a food pantry in your town. They couldn't do that kind of work. And the result of this was a million million benefits denials in the first three years of the experiment. It was a more than 50 percent, a 54 percent increase from the three years prior to the experiment. And these had just some terrible, terrible um, results for poor working families in in Indiana, Um, including uh, I tell the story of Omega Young um, from Evansville, um, who was unable to make a um, recertification interview, a, a phone interview interview because she was in the hospital um, suffering from terminal cancer. Even though she called them to let them know that she couldn't make this uh, appointment they had scheduled for her because she was in the hospital, they uh, cut her off from her medical benefits for um, this sort of catch-all reason that most cases were denied for, which was called failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. Um, And she... Um, because she lost her uh, Medicaid, she lost free transportation to medical appointments. She lost her food stamps. She struggled to pay her rent. Um, and uh, Omega Young died on March 1st, 2009. Uh, and on the following day, on March 2nd, um, she won her challenge of that decision to deny her her benefits. All of and all of her benefits were restored the day after she died.
2: Yeah, and I mean the what happened to her, I think, is an example of the effects of that shift from a case-based system to a task-based system, as you say, so possibly if there was a caseworker who was familiar with her scenario, there would have been you know, much more empathy and awareness like, of what was happening to her and uh, an avoidance of that tragic situation.
0: Well, and also I think one of the most important things to understand about that system is the move to automation in the way that it was designed meant that all mistakes Um, in applying or reapplying for public assistance, all mistakes became failures to cooperate. Um, So every time a mistake got made, it was on applicants to figure out what had happened, what had gone wrong and fix it within 13 days. Um, So this put a really unreasonable set of expectations on some of the most vulnerable people in Indiana. The welfare system is a really hard system to navigate. Um, And it left them, um, it not only left them alone to navigate it, it also basically accused them of a felony if they made a mistake, right? Because welfare fraud, failure to cooperate, which can easily become fraud, is a felony, right? And you can serve jail time for that. So it, it raised the stakes on making a mistake so high that many people that I spoke to after the experiment suggested that basically people just gave up on public assistance. So they just decided that it would be safer and better to do without. Um, and in fact, one of the folks I interviewed um, as I was completing the book, I um, her name's Lindsay Kidwell, She's an amazing mom who had briefly been on Medicaid after the birth of her first child, had, um, gone, had gone off public assistance, had been self-supporting for about 10 years, um, had been kicked off briefly for failure to cooperate during the experiment, but got her was um, really shrewd and got support and got her benefits back. Um, When I talked to her again, it was about 10 years later. So this was 2017 as the book was coming out. uh, She said, you know what, like I was off public benefits for a long time. Um, I'm going through a divorce now. I'm a single mom. I work, but it doesn't always make it. I know that I'm probably eligible for public assistance, but I will never apply again. Uh, This is the state convincing people that they should not get the resources that they are eligible for and that they deserve and that they need to keep their families safe and healthy. And we should all be deeply concerned about the state operating in that way.
2: In the book, you have examples of the letters that these people were sent, and they are remarkable. I mean, the one that stuck out to me was the letter to Sophie Stipes. Yeah, so right. She was six years old at the time this yeah. letter was sent and severely yeah. disabled. And, you know, the, the, the language in the letters, it's obviously all formulaic, but it's like failure to cooperate in establishing your eligibility for Medicaid, failure to cooperate in verifying income-supporting laws or regulations. So it, it, it's this uh, very threatening strain. Like, the language to me just seems so daunting. And yeah, the that, letter
0: and the letter was addressed to a six-year-old with cerebral palsy. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly the the right sort of metaphor, I think, for how the system how the system operated. It really was a, a system of intimidation and yeah,
2: accusatory, accusatory and daunting in course of the the language that was used. And, and I think it's a textbook example of how setting the defaults in a certain way for the system makes it like that. So it makes it very difficult for people to actually access and operate because of it. Because of the way in which we set it up initially, that, that that was the way we were going to default, that the responsibility is on the applicant.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly an yeah. example of that deep social programming I'm talking about. So this this choice that's not a choice uh, that, that gets so deeply embedded that we don't even realize it anymore, that's exactly right. The default in the system was that everybody who's applying for public assistance is trying to commit fraud.
2: Yeah, it, it has that assumption embedded into it, which is exactly. – I- it, it's ironic to me in some sense because you know other manifestations of uh, – Social engineering philosophies, let's say like the nudge philosophy, they talk a lot about if you want to improve overall welfare, you've got to set it up so it's like a default opt-in system. So everyone's assumed to want to be in the system as opposed to want out. So it's, it's inter- that plays out in relation to like pension payments if you're a employee of a company. And yet they set it up in a different way because there's a different set of ideological assumptions when it comes to accessing welfare. I just find that yeah, exactly. an interesting illustration. So, I mean, what was the net result in Indiana? What happened in the end?
0: So there was a, a, one of the sort of bright points, actually, in the book is that is is. <laughs> strangely, ironically, is Indiana, which is that um, just regular folks, um, including um, organizations that were taking up the slack where the state had stepped back. So libraries, for example, became de facto welfare offices as librarians struggled to help people fill out these applications online. The only place that they could get online was often libraries. Um, Local government had to step in and fill the gap when people removed help for medical care um, and just regular folks, both folks who were applying for and failing to receive public assistance and folks who who cared about their communities, really pushed back. So there was this incredible movement of people that rose across the state Um, They had um, these incredible town halls where hundreds and hundreds of people would come to to protest the changes. And they produced incredible pressure on the governor um, and on both parties um, in Indiana to roll back the system. And because of that pressure, the governor did something really unprecedented, which is cancel this contract three years into a 10 year contract. The caveat to that is that IBM then turned around and sued the state for breach of contract. And at least in the first round of the legal case, actually one, the, the judge in the first uh, round of the legal case um, said that the contract had not been breached and awarded, not only let IBM keep the half billion dollars Close to half billion dollars they had already collected, but awarded them an extra fifty million dollars in penalties. Now that case is, was ongoing and lasted close to eight years. Um, and in the end, uh, the Supreme Court found that the that they had actually breached the contract and turned around and gave the state, I think, hundred and forty million dollars, hundred twenty-eight million dollars. But in the long run, this system just ended up costing the state so much more than it than it it saved the state. Right. Often we talk about these tools as ways to maximize efficiency and to do uh, sort of cost savings. Um, But what I often say is building these systems well is actually really, really expensive. And building these systems poorly is only cheaper at first in the long run, it ended up really costing not just the families who, who suffered directly because they lost their benefits, but every, all Hoosiers, all people in the state of Indiana who ended up paying for this failure, both in paying off, uh, paying what they paid on the contract, but also in the eight years of legal battles, um, it took to, um, decide whose fault it was, um, after the, um, after the. The, the failure of the contract after the canceling of the contract. And they've moved to sort of a high, what, what they call the hybrid system now, which has brought back some Par, um, some pieces of the face-to-face contact that used to be common, um, but has kept the task-based system. And Indiana currently still has the lo- one of the lowest receipt rates of cash assistance of any place in the United States. So something like seven or eight percent of low-income families are receiving help from ta- from the TANF program in Indiana, um, which and which means that the the successful applications have continued to fall off since the hybrid system um, was instantiated.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was gonna ask you that, but whether you thought lessons had been learned and whether things had improved, but the the suggestion is that there's a a cycle back around now again to um, this kind of more exclusionary approach or denial approach.
0: What the people I interviewed said is that they felt like the hybrid system responded to the concerns of advocates, right? So they responded to like Medicaid attorneys and people in non-governmental organizations or nonprofits, but that they weren't sure. They like they said they felt like they had won the battle, but they weren't sure they had won the war. That they felt like it was still a, a system that was much more difficult to navigate than the than the previous system, and that people were still being diverted.
2: Yeah. So I mean, so that's one mechanism through which the, the kind of digital the poor house has been created and it's a good illustration again of the, the ideology that's enfolded with these systems. Um, I'm going to just skip I think the second case study in your book because we're running a bit long and I really want to talk about the third one. But the second case study has to do with a database for homelessness in LA which we can sum up exactly what it is roughly by using the slogan which you use in the book which is that it's a match.com for the homeless. That was the intention behind the project I guess but it yep. ended up having less salubrious uh, or positive uh, repercussions. Although I don't know if match.com is is particularly positive either. I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) Well, like the one thing I'll say about that, and then we'll just let people read the book is – um, that one of the things that's really importantly different about the system in Los Angeles is that where in Indiana, like I don't know um, what was in Mitch Daniels' soul when he was um, deciding to sign this contract. And I can't, I can't know with any kind of certainty what his intentions were. Um, but many people in Indiana told me that if they had tried to build a system that diverted people from public assistance on purpose, it would have been hard to do any better than they did potentially accidentally. And so while the story that I tell in the, the story that I tell in Indiana is I feel like it's quite familiar to people. It's sort of the worst case scenario, the perfect storm of right, uh, an administration that was really anti-public services, corporate actor who is more than willing to step into a lucrative contract without really making sure, without having any responsibility to make sure that people weren't harmed, and ending in this like perfect storm of, of awful consequences for poor and working people in the state of Indiana. I feel like that's a story we're really comfortable with. But once we move to the Los Angeles and the Allegheny County cases, um, I'm asking readers to do something much more difficult, which is to really grapple with cases where the people who are designing these systems are very smart. Are super well intentioned, um, and are doing actually everything that most progressive critics of algorithmic decision making ask them to do. Right, so these are some of the best systems we have, not some of the worst. If I wanted to write a really, really scary book about these tools, I would have written a different book. But in both Los Angeles and Allegheny County, um, the designers here have been really transparent. They've really released a lot of information about how their tools work. They've um, built-in mechanisms for accountability, um, where these tools are held in public agencies or in public-private partnerships that have some kind of accountability to the communities that they're serving. And in both Los Angeles and Allegheny County, there were even some attempts at participatory and user-centered design. So these are all of the things that we tend to ask that folks do, right? Transparency, accountability, and participatory design. And so the harder question I'm asking readers to grapple with, with the second two cases, is what if we do everything right and we still produce these tools that, for their targets, for the people who are experiencing them most directly in their lives, feel really dangerous and feel like they make them more vulnerable and not less vulnerable, what then is the problem? Um, so yeah. that's the thing that's important to understand as we transition from Indiana to the, uh, to the second two cases.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I was trying to think of an analogy as I went along there that, you know, the the Indiana story has the clear villains. It's like the comic book movie, whereas the other two cases are a little bit more mor- morally ambiguous or uncertain as to how yeah, ha- to interpret them. Yeah, te- I think
0: they're technically more complicated, and they're also ethically more complicated. And that was really intentional. That was part of the design of the book.
2: Yeah. So, the, I mean, the Allegheny County case studies i mean this seems like a system on the face of it ha- which has is very well intentioned so it's it's they've created an automated system for risk scoring children who might be uh, prone to neglect or abuse of some sort so maybe you could describe in a little bit more detail like what the system was what its intentions were how it operated
0: sure and we shouldn't talk about this one in the past because it is still going strong yes um, sorry so that's the, important well that i that's okay. The tool that I talk about in, um, in the third chapter or the fourth chapter, the Allegheny County case is called the Allegheny County, I'm sorry, the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, the AFST. And it's a predictive model, it's a statistical model that is supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future. And um, the model is built on top of a data warehouse that the county has been building since 1999. And that data warehouse includes um, these regular extracts that they receive from 29 different public programs um, around the county and the state. So things like juvenile and adult probation, child protective services, which in Allegheny County is called Children, Youth, and Family Services, or CYF. Um, Public school data is in there. Data from the State Office of Income Maintenance, which is Pennsylvania's welfare um, sort of cash assistance office. County mental health, county uh, drug and alcohol addiction programs. All of those programs send Regular data extracts into this data warehouse. Um, The data warehouse currently has, or as of 2017, had 1 billion records in it, which is more than 800 for every individual that lives in Allegheny County, which is where Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania. So the tool is built on top of that as a data set, this data set that is almost entirely collected only on families that reach out to public services for support. So it really is a database that only has information about poor and working families and that ends up to be that ends up being enormously consequential for the kinds of predictions this model is able to make so to briefly go into the technical weeds for folks who are interested in this, and I'll keep it really short. Um, the model is um, not currently uh, machine learning. Um, it is a stable statistical model. It's, it's kind of a regression called a stepwise probit regression. That uh, this team of designers, um, international team of designers, um, including economist Rima Vaitianathan from New Zealand um, and Emily Putnam Hornstein um, from the um, from from USC. Um, they ran this probate regression against all of the variables that were available in the data warehouse. Um, they identified 131 factors that they believe are highly correlated with future neglect or, um, or abuse. Um, and then they produced this model that weighted all of those different factors to produce a risk score for a family. Um, so what, how it's used is when a call comes in to the county's um, hotline, abuse or neglect hotline, or when a mandated reporter who are like nurses, clergy, teachers, and other professionals who are required to report any suspicion they have of child that child abuse is occurring. When a caller report comes in about a child, a group of public workers called intake screeners, these are the folks who screen these calls and decide which ones go to investigation and which ones don't get screened out, they do several things. They may two clinical judgments, one about how severe the claim is, like whether or not it's actually abuse or neglect as defined by the state of Pennsylvania, and the second about how much risk they believe that um, the the child is in, like how much danger the child is in. And then once they lock in those two sort of ratings in their system, they've run this tool. And the tool gives them a score um, between zero and 20, 20 being the highest risk. Um, The score is just supposed to be supplemental. It's supposed to give um, human intake screeners um, more information from the vast data resources the county has to help them make more objective, more reliable decisions. But if the score currently is over 16, the system actually mandates that um, the call be screened in, that the call be screened in for investigation unless it's overridden by a supervisor. So that's how the tool is working right now.
2: Yeah. And it creates a little, uh, it has a visual thermometer reading, doesn't it, that on the screen? It yeah. goes from green to red if for high risk and green for low risk. Um, so I mean, it's, it functions like a number of Decision support tools like that it it ranks criteria, uses proxy measures to develop some kind of score, and then that is supposed to assist human decision makers. I guess the fear always in these systems is that there will be some kind of automation bias or tendency to just not to second guess the judgment of the uh, system itself, because humans can't weigh and compare 131 variables in their minds. So you know, who are we to second guess that kind of judgment? It ha- it was designed by two. Academics, if I'm correct, so they're they're both university affiliated academics, they want a contract from the county to to run this system. Is that correct?
0: That's right, yeah
2: and the, it's not it's not a private corporation as I understand it, that's running this system it's It's owned and run by the state.
0: That's exactly right. yeah. so this again is one of these these examples where you know most of the stories we hear, for example, there's a, like a similar child welfare predictive model running in Florida that was created by um, a private. Um, company called Eckerd, um, and they're related. Sort of, um, it's unclear whether they're a nonprofit or what exactly they are. Called Mindshare, so that was this a similar system that was running in Chicago and is currently running in Florida. That um, Chicago chose, or I think the whole state of Illinois chose, to cancel that contract in December of 2017. Um, but what I wanted to again, what I wanted to do is show people a case where. Um, Really, they're doing everything right right? This is really one of the best examples. Um, They've been very thoughtful about design. They involve the community in discussions about how to use the tool. They've been very clear about how it works. They've been very open with sharing. They've shared all of the predictive variables that are in the system, though importantly, they've chosen not to share the weights of those predictive variables, which ends up being very important because then you can't tell whether things are predictive or whether they drive your risk score up or down. And that turns out to be really important
2: Yeah, on Uh, on that point though so what so what are the kind of variables that they use and why aren't they sharing the weights
0: yeah so that is something you'd have to ask them why they're not sharing the weights um but yeah so let's take apart the the inside of the system a little bit because it's important to understand um a couple of the concerns that The both parents um, shared with me, um, parents who are currently child welfare involved shared with me, and also the intake screeners uh, shared with me. So the first concern that folks have is around what are called outcome variables. So outcome variables are basically the thing in one of these models that you're trying to measure, and in most cases, trying to prevent. So in this case, they're trying to prevent physical, emotional, sexual abuse, Um, and really severe neglect of children. Um, So that is actually measured in the state of Pennsylvania by these forms called child fatality and near fatality reports. Luckily for the children of Pennsylvania, there are very few of these reports every year. There's just a handful of these reports every year. So that's not actually enough data to build a reliable model on. You need a lot of data in order to develop the probabilities that make a, um, a model's predictions reliable. So they can't use actual documented harm. Um, which is what they're trying to prevent. So instead of using child fatalities and near fatalities, they had to choose proxies, which are just things that stand in for the thing that you're actually trying to um, trying to to measure or model. So they originally chose two, proxies. The first was called call re-referral. That meant that there was a call or a report made on a child that was screened out by the intake screeners and that there was another call on that child within two years. The second proxy that they chose um, was called child placement, which means that a call or report was made on a child. Um, It was screened in for investigation and it in in the within two years, in the end, it resulted in that child being removed from their family and placed in foster care. So they're no longer using child re referral. They're now just using uh, placement. Um, but the thing that's really important to note around that, and that people were real concerned about, is that what that means is that they're actually modeling decisions that are made by the agency of who to. Investigate and who to indicate for neglect or abuse, and decisions that are made by the legal system of who to pull, which children to pull out of their families and put into foster care. So they're not actually modeling child harm, they're modeling the likelihood of whether or not a child will be removed from their family. And those are importantly different things because the decision to remove a child from their family is deeply, deeply influenced by things like. Um, racial bias, class bias, institutionalized racism, institutionalized classism. Um, who has access to legal help? Who doesn't have access to legal help? And and and. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it, it, it is not a direct measure of the thing that they're trying um, to um, identify and, and, and prevent. So those are outcome variables. There are proxies. And that's something that people are really concerned about. Um, the, another thing that people are concerned about is these predictive variables, that the predictive variables, the 131 things that they have decided are highly correlated with neglect and abuse are only pulled out of this ocean of data that is only collected on poor and working families in Allegheny County. So um, that turns out to be a problem for two reasons. The parents were concerned, and rightfully so. I think you would you would have the same concern if one of these tools ranked your family um, super risky for their children, uh, for your children. Um, So the families that uh, the parents I talked to were really concerned about um, false positives, that the system would confuse their poverty with poor parenting, would would confuse parenting while poor with poor parenting in a way that opened their family up for extra scrutiny because there was extra scrutiny and surveillance. There's a higher chance of something being uncovered that wouldn't have been a problem, you know, unless you were under this constant investigation. And then that snowballs into, um, you know, a deeper investigation, a court case and your, your child being removed. So they're really concerned about the system seeing potential harm where no harm was actually happening. But the intake screeners were concerned about the opposite problem, but for the same reason. So they were concerned about false negatives. Mm -hmm. They were concerned because they understood that because there's no data about professional middle-class and wealthy families in the system, the variables or the factors that might lead to abuse in those families are missing from the model. And so that model will misrecognize professional middle-class and wealthy families as being safer and that it will then miss the kinds of abuse that and neglect that happen in those families. So intake screeners were worried that the system wouldn't see harm where harm was actually occurring. And parents were see, were concerned about the system seeing harm where no harm was actually occurring. But both of those concerns come out of the reality that the data set that this, this model is built on only has information about poor working class families. So we could call it a form of poverty profiling that is very much like racial profiling and the way that it works in predictive policing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was just going to mention, you know, the debates around the sentencing algorithms like the compass algorithm. It seems like very similar kinds of debates are playing out here in relation to this risk profiling of of children. and I, this gets to the point that you make. So you you talk about the fact that the designers have been good, reasonably transparent, and they've constructed a participatory process. But you still describe the system as being incredibly dangerous. And I think we get a sense of why you think it's dangerous from the flaws that you've identified there. But that I think, raises the deeper question for me, which is: Could you ever? Could we ever create a system that uh, avoids these perils, these dangers, and just to give a, you know, an example or a comparison here with the sentencing algorithms. And one of the problems that's clearly emerged in the debate around sentencing algorithms is that the designers of those systems have tried to create a, something that is roughly the same amount of accuracy depend, um, irrespective of whether you are a white American or an African American. So like the, it, it, they're roughly as good at predicting whether somebody will commit another offence. Regardless of those populations, but because there are more African Americans in the system and this kind of this, there's this pre-existing bias in the way in which people get fed into the system, that means that you're you're more likely to be uh, a false uh, given a false positive if you're an African American defendant or a or, um, prisoner as opposed to a uh, a white or Caucasian American. So the the system doesn't do anything to the pre-existing biases within the criminal justice framework in in America. It seems like there's something similar happening here in relation to to this example. So is, is there a way of designing this automated profiling system that could avoid those problems? Or is this just not the way to approach this social problem at all.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, I think that's the million dollar question for sure. This is the billion dollar question um, uh, with inflation. Um, So I'll share um, just an anecdote, a personal experience I had. So I was recently on a panel in New York City um, that included one, uh, an employee from ACS, which is the Administration for Children's Services in New York City, Um, and ACS is moving towards some use of limited predictive analytics in their child welfare system as well part of the reason, both in Allegheny County and in New York City, the, um, they, they aren't just talking about this tool as a way to maximize efficiency or, you know, a- administrative efficacy. They're really talking about these tools as possible tools to help combat Um, Bias in child welfare. And that's a really crucial problem. So in 37 states in the United States, um, uh, black and Native American children are removed from their families at rates that far surpass their um, their. Uh, proportion in the population. And that's a problem that's called racial disproportionality. This is, it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem in Allegheny County. Something like 48% of children in foster care in Allegheny County are Black or biracial um, when only 18% of the youth of Allegheny County are Black or biracial. So it's like almost three, uh, a disproportionality score of three, which is like um, three times as likely as they should be to be in the system based on their proportion in the um, in the population um, and one of the things that happened at this conversation um, that I was in with a um, with the employee from from New York city's ACS was uh, we were talking we we're sort of pushing a bit on him around disproportionality in New York City, which is quite a bit worse than that. Um, And what he said, which I found so telling, it was sort of a defensive moment. But what he said, which I found so telling was, well, I guess you guys will be happy to know that we're actually taking, um, we're actually removing white kids from their families more than we used to. So, uh, So that was the idea there of justice was not that we put fewer children overall in foster care. It was that we are putting more white kids in foster care, which would lower disproportionality. So I'd say the same thing about prison, right? The goal is not to put more white people in prison, right? The goal is to put fewer people in prison. And so I think we really have to have this deep, deeper conversation that isn't just about accuracy or even about bias in this very limited understanding of bias, that it only, wor- it, it only happens when like an individual makes a discriminatory decision about another individual, but that bias is something that is structural and systemic and built into all of our institutions. And the real hazard of automation, um, when you're not designing explicitly to counter those institutional biases, is that it will amplify and intensify that. Um, that discrimination and that exclusion and that inequality um, because we haven't explicitly built against it. So of course it's possible to explicitly build a system that pushes back against the institutionalized racism and classism in American um, institutions, but it won't happen by accident. And if we don't build these very rigorous systems that push back against um, bias and structural um, inequality, then we'll end up amplifying and intensifying those inequalities. So I think that's the big lesson is, again, comes back to this idea of the deep social programming of these tools. I think part of the deep social programming of predictive analytics and child welfare um, is this idea that families of color are pathological and that poor families are dangerous to their children and that the You know, they at best need support that comes with a lot of state surveillance. And at worst, they need their children to be given to wealthier families. Um, And that's some deep stuff that we can't just fix with technology. And I'll give you like a very specific example to make that more concrete quickly. So, for example, this is one of the things that Allegheny County hopes that the Allegheny Family Screening Tool can do is help identify patterns of bias decision-making among intake screeners over time. Um, Not that they think this will fix their disproportionality, but that that they think that this will help them identify where bias is happening in their decision-making and and start to address it. And that's um, a laudable goal. It's a really important goal. The problem is that the county's own research shows that the great majority of disproportionality in the system does not actually enter at screening, it enters at referral. So black and biracial families in Allegheny County are called on or reported for abuse three and a half times more often than white families. And it turns out that screening doesn't make much of a difference in that disproportionality. So screeners are screening in 69% of black and biracial families and 64% of white families. So just like you were saying earlier, with the problem isn't necessarily that the decision itself is biased against a certain race. The problem is everything else in that system up till then work together to create a system that is majority people of color or that is majority poor people. And then um, the decision, that decision that you're looking at for bias isn't actually making much of a difference. And ironically, and I think frighteningly, we actually could remove discretion at a point intake screening that could correct for some of this bias that is entering the system from who the community refers to child protective services and who the community refers has everything to do with who we believe what we believe good families look like and in the united states we believe good safe families are white and rich
2: yeah I, so i think this that's a very important point and it's something that actually has cropped up in other conversations i've had on this podcast so just briefly mention a, a, Few episodes episodes ago, I had a conversation with Ruben Binns about fairness in machine learning, and a while back now, I had a conversation with Andrew Ferguson about uh, big data in in policing and predictive policing. And something that came out of both of those conversations was the fact that when you're creating these technological systems, you're kind of grafting them into the system at a or a process at a, at a particular stage, and there's all these kind of biases and problems earlier in the in the process uh, that aren't going to be. Corrected for or filtered out at that point in time, if anything, as you've made the point that they're going to be amplified and reinforced by the, uh, the technological system, if you, if you only think about it in that kind of narrow frame, if you don't think about the deeper values and problems that society has. yeah. Yeah.
0: So it seems to me, it feels to me like the AFST is sort of a solution in search of a problem, right? So they've aimed this tool that's supposed to be able to help them identify bias at a place where very little bias is happening when there are other areas in the system where massive bias is happening, but they're not amenable to data based solutions, right? Like you can't, it, there's not necessarily like an algorithm to help families understand that black families can be healthy, um, productive, fantastic, empowering families. Um, and to understand that, um, professional middle-class white families can be incredibly dangerous to their kids under certain conditions, right? So that's not a data amenable problem. Um, and so that's not um, that's not where we're aiming this tool, like we're aiming this tool where it uh, where it works, not where the problem is.
2: Yeah, it's a classic solutionism in, in action that we, yeah, as you say, we have a tool and then we try and put it in somewhere where it can solve a non-existent problem or a, a problem that isn't really the, the main issue or the main, the main um, concern that we have. So yeah, I think that's an important thing. And if there are people who design these systems out there listening to this conversation, that I think should be the take-home lesson: that if you want to create a tool that's useful, look more deeply at the the deeper underlying social problems and inequalities. If you if you want to to help,
0: and I think the the big picture issue in child welfare is that um you know we investigate i think it's 3.6 million children a year for neglect and abuse in the united states a full 75% of those investigations i'm sorry we do 3.6 million investigations a year so that's many more children than that cuz they often include multiple children um but a full 75% of those investigations involve neglect not abuse not physical Um, sexual or emotional abuse, um, but are are really uh, investigations about whether or not families have the basic resources they need to support their children. Um, And the issue there is that our social assistance programs are failing, right? So if you read through from the first case to the last case in my book, you see how families get set up, right? Like you remove medical care from a family for making a stupid error, well, maybe they didn't even make the error, for an error being made in their application for Medicaid. And then if you don't have medical care for your children, that's neglect, that's medical neglect, and your child can be removed and and put into foster care. So this the whole system works together in a way that really radically limits people's options and makes them feel very unsafe and very vulnerable.
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's an important point too. And um, as you also point out, neglect can sometimes be a difficult thing to define or characterize. It, there's a lot of subjectivity in the judgment or assessment of, of what counts as neglect that's serious enough to to warrant some kind of intervention. So we, I think we're pretty much out of time. I do just have one last question I wanted to ask you. We've gone into maybe some of the ways in resolving these problems, some of the values that are at stake. I, I do want to consider briefly, though, this idea of the digital poorhouse in, in your book. So it it is an analogy between the physical poorhouse of the 1800s and this technological poorhouse of the 2010s. But there are important differences between them. And you do outline, I think, maybe four or five important differences that I think we should all reflect upon um, about the kind of persistence and the scalability of the digital poorhouse. So maybe you could just comment briefly on the the poorhouse that we're constructing through technology nowadays and how it differs from the past?
0: Yeah, sure. So I think the metaphor is really useful to to think with, but I think it also is limited in some important ways because there are definitely ways that the digital poorhouse is different from what came before. And I'm not arguing that like, Things are exactly the same as they were in the 1800s. Like, they're not. (laughs) These tools operate in different ways and in ways that are incredibly consequential for us as a political community and and for people who come into contact with with these tools. Um, So one is that they're just quite hard to – they're often quite hard to understand. And one of the things that I did intentionally in the book is actually talk about tools that were sort of low-tech Right, so even the Allegheny Family Screening Tool often gets reported about as if it's machine learning or ar- artificial intelligence, and in fact, it's just a it's a statistical regression. Though they are moving now more towards machine learning, and the reason I did that is that I think it's really important for us to convince ourselves that we actually know enough, even if we're not data scientists like me. I'm not a data scientist or economists or people who use these models a lot, that we actually know enough to have informed opinions um, and ask really good questions about how these tools are being used and whether or not they're aligned with our values. Um, So there's some kind of math washing that often happens around these tools that uh, basically sort of is a hand waving that says like, oh, this is way too complicated for you to understand. Just trust us that, you know, math is going to save these babies. And I think that we are capable of understanding these systems and we have a right and responsibility to do that because these systems are making major political decisions for us in a democracy, and we need to be involved in that decision-making. So one of the things that's different about the system is, right, like a, a brick-and-mortar poorhouse is very easy to understand, and these tools are a little bit more complicated than that. Um, also, there's there's differences around speed and scale. So we were originally supposed to get a poorhouse in every county in the United States we didn't quite get there because it took a long time to build them. It took long enough to build them that we realized they were terrible solutions, that they were actually more expensive um, and more damaging to our communities than the kinds of relief, poor relief that we had had before. And so we stopped building them. That's not to say that we didn't get a lot of them. We got, we got a lot of them and the they lasted well into the 1950s. So the one in my hometown didn't close until 1954. So they were around for a long time. But the new tools scale much more quickly um, and they work much faster in a way that I think we should be really concerned about. The digital poorhouse, too, I think has a kind of momentum to it, a kind of persistence to it that can be remarkably hard to, um, which means it can be remarkably hard to decommission them after they've been um implemented so um, while I was writing the book I believed actually very strongly that we would not really be able to stop using these predictive models in child protective services particularly because of fear of liability or fear of I mean, understandable caution in the face of children possibly being harmed. Nobody wants bad things to happen to kids. Nobody. And I believed very strongly that it would be almost impossible to decommission these things once you started experimenting with them. I have since happily been proved wrong when Chicago and Illinois cancelled their contract with Eckerd in 2017. So there is, I think, more space to say no to these systems once they're um, online. But you can understand that it would be hard to ignore or a flashing red number that says a child is in danger, even if you have some doubts about how the tool, how effective and accurate the tool is. Um, And also the record that the digital poorhouse creates is potentially eternal. Right. So though folks who actually work in this field will will correct me, and I think rightly so, that, uh, you know, digital records are much less persistent than, you know, we often think they are. So, you know, as anyone who has like an old jazz drive hanging out in their house and is never going to get the data off that thing knows, like these records aren't as forever as we uh, often think they are. But there is the potential for these records to become eternal. And that really matters particularly when we are looking at things like the Allegheny Family Screening tool, which doesn't just risk rate the children who are being reported or even just their parents, but every person who has been a member of that household during the time period where these things might have been happening. So these tools are kind of kind of um, viral in their effects because they don't just rate individuals, they rate social networks that this sort of eternal and viral record, um, is a very different kind of a record than like the old paper ledger of the poorhouse, most of which have molded away to dust. And then finally, I think that one of the major things that's different about the digital poorhouse is whether or not we understand that we're that we're inside of it, or whether we think we are currently outside of it any one of us who comes in contact with the public assistance system, um, and that's again, two thirds of us um, during our adult lives, any one of us who comes in contact with the public service system is now living inside this digital poorhouse. Um, And that I think is enormously consequential, um, both negatively in terms of how much reach these tools have And potentially positively, because I actually think that these tools in their sort of overreach um, can become focusing points for um, organizing, movement organizing around um, algorithmic justice, but around social justice more broadly. Um, As we see more and more people being touched by these digital tools in ways that um, impact their health and their safety, um, that impact the uh, quality of our communities and the quality of our democracy. Um, I hope that these tools actually can become kind of diagnostics, these moments where we realize that our values or the way that we are making decisions together has gone terribly off the rails. Um, Because many of the things that I uh, describe in automating inequality, um, like not having enough food, uh, like living on the sidewalk for a decade, um, like losing your child to foster care because you can't afford their um, prescription drugs. Those things would need to be seen for what they are, which is human rights violations. These are not systems engineering problems. And I hope that the the very overreach of these systems helps us see Um, how often we share these experiences um, of uh, interactions with the state that make us feel unsafe um, and um, and less than human and that we can come together and demand to be seen in our full humanity to demand to be seen as beyond uh, a set of data points. um, But as fully human members uh, of our political community and our physical communities.
2: I think that's a, a good place to leave it, and it kind of brings us full circle in the conversation with the realization that the future may now be more equally distributed, and that might actually be an opportunity to realize our our common humanity. So I'd just like to thank you for joining me for this conversation, Virginia.
1: Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I so enjoyed talking to you.